This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, June 17th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rachel Delgidis. What is hate speech and why are people on a crusade to outlaw it? Arthur Millick, formerly the Associate Director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation, joins me on the Daily Signal podcast to discuss. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. President Trump has signed an executive order to ban police officers' use of chokeholds. Speaking from the Rose Garden on Tuesday, the president announced the Safe Policing for Safe Communities order per Bloomberg Quick Take News, which is designed to provide more training for police officers on how to de-escalate test situations and provide further training on appropriate use of force. Under the executive order I'm signing today, we will prioritize federal grants from the Department of Justice to police departments that seek independent credentialing, certifying that they meet high standards and, in fact, in certain cases, the highest standard. That's where they do the best, on the use of force and de-escalation training. For example, many believe that proper training might have prevented the tragic deaths of Antoine Rose and Botham Jean. As part of this new credentialing process, chokeholds will be banned, except if an officer's life is at risk. John Malcolm, vice president of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government, described the order as welcome news, writing in the Daily Signal that if the president's order is implemented correctly, it will, quote, lead to greater accountability and transparency, increased trust between the police and the communities they serve, improved professionalism of police forces and officer wellness. The proposal also should result in more humane and safe treatment of those in distress who are homeless or suffering from the throes of addiction or mental health disorder and enter the criminal justice system as either perpetrators or victims. In the midst of the rioting and unrest following the death of George Floyd, President Trump is saying that school choice is the civil rights issue of the day. In an address delivered in the Rose Garden on Tuesday, Trump said via Fox News. We're fighting for school choice, which really is the civil rights of all time in this country. Frankly, school choice is the civil rights statement of the year. Family members of Ahmaud Arbery met privately with President Trump on Tuesday. 25-year-old African-American Arbery was shot and killed while he was out for a jog just a few miles from his Georgia home in February. Father and son Gregory and Travis McMichael were arrested last month and are facing murder charges. Relatives of other victims were also present at the meeting, which took place before President Trump signed the Safe Policing for Safe Communities Executive Order. Speaking to the families of the victims, Trump said during his remarks in the Rose Garden that all Americans mourn by your side. Your loved ones will not have died in vain. We are one nation. We grieve together and we heal together. 
A well-known drug called dexamethasone is being found to successfully treat COVID-19 patients. The drug has been previously used to treat people with ailments such as altitude sickness and eye inflammation, NBC reported. A group of researchers from the University of Oxford found that deaths were reduced by about a third in those patients who were sick enough to require mechanical ventilation and by about 20% among patients who had trouble breathing but had not been put on a ventilator and that the steroid did not appear to help patients who did not require oxygen, according to NBC. More American adults are unhappy today than any other time in the past 50 years. A new study conducted by the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago found that only 14% of American adults say they are very happy right now. In 2018, that number was 31%. The University of Chicago has been gathering information on the happiness of Americans since 1972, and since then, the lowest percentage of happiness reported was in 2010 at 29%. The study reveals that 23% of Americans say they are not too happy. Optimism for future generations is also down. In 2018, 57% of American adults believed that their children's standard of living would be even better than theirs when they reached their current age. Now that number has fallen to 42%. And nearly twice as many adults say that they feel lonely compared with 2018 numbers. But Louise Hockley, a senior research scientist at the University of Chicago, said per AP that it isn't as high as it could be. People have figured out a way to connect with others. It's not satisfactory, but people are managing to some extent. Contact tracers in New York are not asking people with coronavirus if they participated in protests over the killing of George Floyd. The city reported that over the two last weeks, Mayor Bill de Blasio and others have voiced concerns that packed police brutality protests across the city could trigger a new wave of COVID-19 infections. Whether or not that's the case, however, remains unknown, and de Blasio's team won't be directly trying to find out. Avery Cohen, a spokesperson for de Blasio, told the city in an email that no person will be asked proactively if they attended a protest. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Arthur Millick on hate speech. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Canaparo. And if you want to understand what's happening at the Supreme Court, be sure to check out SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast. We take a look at the cases, the personalities, and the gossip at the highest court in the land. It's SCOTUS 101. I'm joined today on the Daily Signal podcast by Arthur Millick. He's the Associate Director of the B. Kenneth Steinman Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Arthur, thank you so much for being on the Daily Signal podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. You recently just published a paper for Heritage.org called Hate Speech and the New Tyranny Over the Mind. So to start off before uh, we get talking about everything else, what is hate speech and why do we have freedom of speech in America at all? Great. Well, thank you. Those are great questions. Um, first of all, hate speech is something that's really difficult to define. In fact, people that professionally try to define it, people that write laws or regulations in Europe where hate speech is already criminalized, have a difficulty defining it. Um, and there are, there's a lot of confusion about what it is. Um, you get a lot of public arguments about uh, hate speech being 
racial epithets or Holocaust denial. And when I say those are just the public arguments, I mean that that's not really what's at stake and that's not really what uh, advocates want to either outlaw or criminalize. Those are just the arguments for well-meaning people that say, well, why should we be mean to one another? And I personally don't think that we should. I think that we should be very courteous to our fellow Americans, to our fellow citizens. But what, at, what is at stake is not racial epithets. Here's the bottom line of what criminalization advocates are actually after. What they want to get rid of is speech that harms the self-respect of so-called marginalized or victim groups. And what that means in the end is that uh, those victim groups are free to speak as much as they want against the oppressor group, which in America, in the American context, is defined by the left, these are their words and not mine, as white Americans. So it would be perfectly permissible to speak against the oppressor group, while the oppressor's speech, which would harm the self-respect or dignity of victim groups, would be silenced. Well, can you tell us a little bit about this paper before we kind of delve into it? Why did you write it and what does the paper look at? Sure. Um, well, the reason that I wrote it is because there is no such paper in existence. Uh, and, you know, it's not, I don't want to be misunderstood and think that I'm saying that, oh, it's to my credit that I've written an original paper. It's not that at all. It actually shows a real and deep problem about uh, uh, where conservatism is today because um, the, the, the hate speech criminalization regime is already halfway in place in America. You see that the public square already bans informally any kind of speech that could be misconstrued as being offensive to marginalized groups. The big tech world is already banning the kind of speech that I just described. Moreover, there are already precedents in the law that are on the books that could well be used in the future to ban hate speech. Um, and on university campuses throughout America, this kind of speech is already banned. And so that's the circumstance in which we're living in. And conservatives don't even have yet a paper, until I wrote this one, a paper that would summarize the problem and what we can do about it. So the idea of the paper was the real need to articulate to uh, uh, Americans what the problem is, uh, describe it in detail, and uh, articulate what banning hate speech would lead to. So how do hate speech laws undermine the purpose of the American Republic to begin with? Sure. So, uh, look, if we are a republic, that means that we are a people that rule ourselves. And the purpose of the country that we live in is to secure political freedom for its citizens. And the only way to do that is, so, is, is through their own self-rule. Now, once you begin to look with some detail into either the doctrines beneath hate speech criminalization or how they have been implemented in Europe, you very quickly see that as soon as hate speech laws or regulations or even informal rules like we have in our society today are in place to prevent so-called hate speech, the political community no longer rules itself. And I'll give you guys a couple of examples. So 
in my opinion, is that no issue comes close to determining the future of a country like immigration does. Well, according to some parts of the left and according to those who want to criminalize hate speech, to speak of immigration in terms of limiting it, reducing it, or stopping it is a form of hate speech because it harms the dignity or self-respect of immigrants. So take that off the table of what's allowed for political discussion. Well, what about speech that is a defense of the traditional family, a mother and a father uh, with biological children? Such speech that is in defense of that traditional family, which is the cornerstone of, cornerstone, excuse me, of Republican life, is also offensive to feminists and the LGBTQ. So that comes off the table. You ask yourself then, you take a step back and ask yourself, well, what is left then in the public square to be discussed by a free people as it wants to rule itself? And then you say, well, what about sort of neutral issues? Like, I don't know, budgets federal budgets, how we spend the money, like welfare and tax policy. Well, even there you see that actually to discuss welfare is to harm the interests, the, the dignity and the self-respect of certain marginalized groups. As academics have written many times and as the New York Times has said, that discussions of welfare policy are racist dog whistles. So you get rid of that. And you see very quickly that the point of criminalizing hate speech is to reduce discussions of issues like that so that they are off the table once and for all. And so you very quickly see the extent to which criminalizing hate speech, taking certain political issues that are the lifeblood of a Republican people in deciding how they are going to be ruled, is in conflict with identity politics. So Arthur, what would you say is the goal of outlawing so-called hate speech? So this takes me into the realm of speculation because, of course, the more radical advocates never really say what they want. Um, But look, you can begin with uh, some of the advocates who are the more decent and the well-meaning and who don't really fully understand what it is they're asking for. And their answer is very basic. Their answer is, look, uh, uh, people's self-respect should not be harmed in a political community. And speech, especially racial epithets, does just that. And they never feel like they can be part of that political community. And so while that kind of hate speech goes on, uh, we don't live in a genuine republic. That's the well-meaning people. But then the more radical people, I think, and here I have to speculate because, as I said, they don't openly show their minds uh, because they know how radical it is and how indigestible some of their themes are. Um, But I can uh, uh, quickly go through the evidence of just one of these uh, very radical thinkers. He says basically this. This is a professor at the University of Alabama Law School named Richard Delgado. And his answer is something like this. The civil rights movement failed. It's a failure because what it did was it created certain laws like um, uh, public accommodation laws, like fair housing laws that didn't really make a difference. All they did was push discrimination, prejudice, deeper into the minds of the oppressor group, which he defines as, in the American context, being whites. And so what we end up having is private discrimination that lives in the minds and is subtle and, uh, as it's called, unbiased conscious, 
and yet all these phony laws that haven't really done much of a difference. So what he wants to do, and he says this openly, is uh, by banning hate speech, you thereby hope to ban the bad thoughts that the oppressor group has of the marginalized. And only through those means can we approach something uh, like equal self-respect among groups. But he doesn't stop there. He goes one step further. He says that even that won't be enough because judges won't really rule fairly and for other reasons. So what you have to do is the following. You need to uh, take all of society's cultural images and reverse them. So his example is this. Uh, during the civil rights movement, he says, minorities were represented in the public square as heroic and courageous. But after the civil rights movement, that went away. But that's exactly what we need to be doing today. So that all of society's cultural, in the press, in the, in the media, in uh, uh, Hollywood, etc., all of society's images must be uh, in terms of elevating the marginalized and making heroes of them so as to increase their self-respect, and so as to teach the oppressor group that they should respect the marginalized. Thanks for that context, Arthur. In your paper, you talk about some examples of the criminalization of hate speech around the world, and you specifically draw out uh, Europe and Canada. Can you talk a little bit about some of those examples of what goes on in those countries? Europe and Canada started criminalizing hate speech in the 60s, but it really started revving up in the 80s. And the way that they try to define hate speech is by calling it incitement to hatred. Incitement to hatred. So this is obviously a very vague formulation. And what it ends up meaning is that if your speech makes somebody else hate a group, then it can be banned speech. And we already kind of know exactly what kind of speech is banned. And here's the kind of speech. Speech that is deemed racist, anti-trans, homophobic, anti-religious, or xenophobic. In Belgium, in fact, they have laws against sexist speech, and they define it as any gesture or action intended to express contempt towards someone because of their sex. Let me just say that again. Intended to express contempt. And uh, so what are the punishments for this kind of speech in Europe? Well, Fines in the thousands of euros, homes have been raided, computers have been seized, people have been arrested, lives have been destroyed through lawsuits. I mean, these laws have an immense chilling effect on Europe. Uh, and you see this, uh, you see some of the results in their politics. Uh, these laws push both left and right further and further into radicalization, and especially a right who feels that the thumb of tyranny is on them. And yet the irony of these laws, you may say, some reasonable listener may say, okay, that may be the case, but like, isn't it better to get rid of this speech in societies to make them, I don't know, better places? Well, the trouble with these laws is that they simply do not work. I'll give you some examples. Not only are uh, European societies full of discriminatory feelings, so the laws don't get rid of discrimination, but in fact, if you're Jewish and you uh, live in the UK, you are 13 times more likely than in the US to be the victim of anti-Semitic violence, violence. 
and in France, you're four times more likely. In other words, in the U.S., where we do not criminalize hate speech, there is considerably fewer uh, uh, violent attacks on Jews than in societies that do criminalize hate speech. In other words, the laws don't even work on those grounds. And what you end up having, uh, actually, is a public square that is not cleansed of hate speech, not at all. What it ends up being is hate speech that is directed with a vengeance against the legacy populations in those nations. In England, in France, in Germany, you are absolutely free if you are part of a marginalized group to call out Christianity, heterosexuality, the legacy population of those nations, and you will not be touched by the law because the laws are not equally enforced. But if the reverse is the case, if you are a citizen in England who, or in, I actually have a very good example, uh, a politician in Belgium who released leaflets talking about limiting immigration, he, through their hate speech laws, was banned from polit participating in political life for 10 years. Wow. That is a lot. So given the fact that the United States does have the First Amendment, would you say that protects us from going down the road of Europe and Canada, or is that really um, not completely foolproof? I love this question, and I think this is one of the most important ones for us to think through. You may take a look at America and say, well, look, I mean, in 2017, we had this famous Supreme Court case called Matal Vitam that was decided unanimously that said basically hate speech is protected speech. And you may say, well, you know what? Good. The courts will save us. The trouble is that conservatives have relied on the courts to save them for two generations. And every year, there's some new creeping case that shows that you cannot put your trust in the courts they will eventually go in this direction. And uh, the, the, the scene is extremely troubling, in, in my opinion, because uh, if, you, if you think for a second about the famous 2015 Obergefell versus Hodges ruling that uh, claims that gay marriage uh, is a constitutional right, what you see is that um, elites, the press, activism prepared for about 20 years, the public, to receive that message so that the courts could rule that way and would not be looked at as usurpers. Such a ruling would have been impossible 20 or 30 years ago. So courts can be convinced and influenced by activists, by universities, by other kinds of elites. And the real battleground for the future of speech is taking place on university campuses today. You know, I saw a recent survey that said 53% of uh, current university students support free speech. 53%, that is a bare majority, marked change from just a generation ago when almost everybody supported the freedom of speech. Once this right falls out of favor with a, a large amount of Americans, the courts will then act and I think will begin to restrict the freedom of speech. So, Arthur, in light of all of this, what are the consequences of outlawing so-called hate speech? It's hard to know because, you know, we're dealing with such a big phenomena. One of the things is, as I tried to make the case before, is the end of self-rule. Republican self-government is over once hate speech is criminalized. I don't think that anybody looks at Europe and says that that's what Republican self-government looks like. Nobody says that. 
maybe a way to answer this question is by thinking about um, the kinds of speech that would be banned if hate speech was outlawed or criminalized. And I think that there are uh, three really important considerations here. So the first is, as I said before, um, you have to remember that the criminalization of hate speech is a one-way street. It means that the oppressor, the oppressor, the so-called oppressor majority, cannot speak against the marginalized. But, but the marginalized are free to cultivate all sorts of angers, hatreds, resentments against the majority. And in doing so, they will be considered heroes. Uh, so that's number one. That's the first outcome of the, the hate speech regime. Here's the second one. I know that this one sounds really bizarre, uh, but it's, it's true. Um, certain factual claims, claims of fact, will be removed from the realm of discussion. So I'll give you an example. Um, Speaking about the disparities in educational outcomes for affirmative action recipients will be considered speech that cannot happen. And all of the activists that are currently seeking to ban hate speech already say this outright. That is a fact that will not be able to be discussed. Here's another fact that won't be able to, to be discussed. The truth of uh, biology versus the claims of uh, the transgender we see this all the time already, but you will not be able to use the facts of biology to counter those ideologies. So that's number two. Certain facts will be banned, no matter how true they are. And the third thing is, you know, going back to this idea that I, I mentioned, uh, the, the kind of underlying theory of identity politics, which is that all of history is really uh, a struggle between oppressor and oppressed, that the oppressed must release themselves from the false conscience given to them by the oppressor group, find their own identity, and secure their dignity. In order to do that, they have to create uh, myths about themselves. So here's one of those myths. Um, that all of history, this is the feminist myth, all of history is really male patriarchal oppression. Or here's another myth that uh, the New York Times tells in its 1619 project that America is fundamentally racist in its DNA. Those narratives, as they're called, will not be able to be questioned, even on factual grounds. And you see this today, uh, bubbling up in the public square, when uh, you know, the, the current rioters and protesters say that America is absolutely systemically racist. Nobody responds to it. And uh, that will be one of those narratives that will be verboten, will be taken off, uh, off of the table from what can be questioned, even if the facts are the opposite of those claims. So in the paper, you talk about how foreign port and fronts are intent on outlawing hate speech and are banding together and growing in America. Can you just give us a quick run through of what these four fronts are? Sure. So the first one is uh, the obvious one. It's the universities. And we've talked about them a little bit already. Uh, the second is um, big tech. Uh, we've talked about that already, but just to, for, for our listeners, if you want to see what they think about hate speech and whether their view of hate speech is uh, uh, similar or the same as the theory that I laid out, you should look at their speech policies. And you'll see 
that they are a one-way ratchet. Uh, and Twitter even says it openly. They say that we want to protect the speech of historically marginalized groups. That's what this is about. Um, so big tech uh, that has an enormous amount of power, and whether they like it or not, they have become an essential part of the public square in America, where political decisions are made uh, in, 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 in the American public. That's the second one. Um, the third one is the courts. Um, and uh, I mentioned before this Supreme Court case called Obergefell versus Hodges, that was uh, the, the majority of opinion of which was written by Justice Kennedy, where he says the following thing that I'm summarizing. Everybody has the right to create their own identity and that that identity must be recognized. And the implication of that is that, well, if that's his understanding of dignity or that is now the official legal understanding of dignity, that means that speech that undermines your view of your own dignity is a harm, and it can be banned. That's not what Kennedy is saying. Those aren't his direct words, but the implication is already there, and those theories have been laid out by smart people uh, on the left for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. So that's the third front. The fourth front is that administrative agencies, especially the EEOC, have already issued regulations that say that uh, in private businesses, they can launch prosecutions against people who say jokes that are offensive. In other words, the precedent is already in the law. And this stems from uh, uh, civil rights legislation, which uh, in effect, uh, the 60s civil rights legislation was the first breach between public and private that said that, no, the public, the government has a big power, should have a big power to regulate uh, private industry. And that is only one step away from saying, well, if we're actually going to root out discrimination, we have to root out discrimination in speech because that's where discrimination begins insofar as speech is connected to the mind and prejudice lives in the mind. There's a recent book on this. Well, it's not on this, but uh, it's a very powerful book that talks a little bit about this um, uh, by Christopher Caldwell called The Age of Entitlement, uh, which I would commend to you. We talk about also, and you mentioned this briefly earlier, I believe, you talked about how the very purpose of hate speech regulation is one-sided. Can you talk a little bit about this in more depth and why this is the case of why it's such a one-sided movement? Identity politics is a misnomer. It sounds like, when you hear this expression, identity politics, it sounds like, oh, huh, it's the politics of all identities. But when you dig just slightly beneath the surface, you realize it's not the politics of all identities. It's the politics and the celebration of some identities, i.e. those that claim to be marginalized, and it's the putting down of the power structures of the oppressor identities. That's what's at stake. And so while it's true that uh, certain advocates for the criminalization of hate speech claim that they want neutral laws that would regulate speech. So, for example, laws that would say no bad speech against anybody depending on their, uh, based on their race, their ethnicity, their religion, their sexuality, etc. But what you quickly see when you study cases in which such laws exist, that those laws are enforced in a completely one-sided way. 
And as I said before, um, you know, the European, uh, in, in Western European countries, their public squares are full of hatred and theories about how the legacy population, Christianity, heterosexuality, the traditional family, are all things that need to be destroyed and hated. And those people are never prosecuted by those laws, whereas the opposite is not true. And the reason for that is very simple. The very purpose of those laws, the very purpose of implementing those laws, is to vindicate and support the theory of identity politics. It's not to allow everybody to speak freely. Well, Arthur, how would you encourage uh, legislatures as well as those in government passing laws, working on policy to work for free speech? So this is the trouble of the situation. You can't just pass, you know, a sense of Congress that aims to, you know, support the freedom of speech. This stuff is just signaling that goes nowhere. So I think that you have to do two things, essentially. The first is you have to look at the places inside of America where these theories are not only catching uh, uh becoming more and more powerful, but where they're being implemented. So the perfect example of that is America's universities. And my opinion is that uh, America's universities should no longer be funded by the public. They should no longer receive federal funding. We have 3,000 and more colleges and universities in America. They are getting billions of dollars every year from the federal government, for federal for uh, research grants and indirectly through student loans. Well, I have no idea why conservatives are okay with these universities teaching young people to despise the nation, to despise the freedom of speech, and taxpayers are paying for it. In other words, these places are free to discuss as they want, but it is not okay for them to be federally funded. So. Conservatives have to take a really hard look at these kinds of things if you want to stop hate speech from actually being implemented in America, which, as I've said, I don't think is uh, impossible. It could happen in the next 15 or 20 years. So, Arthur, in light of current events, when it comes to all the protesting and rioting and looting following the death of George Floyd, what would you say to people when it comes to exercising free speech well and some of the things you talked about in your paper, what they can keep in mind? First of all, I think that these riots and protests partly prove my thesis about what is coming down the pipe for uh, the freedom of speech. And what I mean is that the major claim of the protesters is that the country is systemically and fundamentally racist to the point that we cannot speak about such things and persuade the majority of that, but we have to use direct violence to show them that we hate this. And what you see from that is that if the left wins on this issue, it will become impossible to falsify the theory that America is systematically racist. That will be considered a form of hate speech. And I don't know if it'll be outright criminalized, but it will be impossible to speak about it in public. Nobody will print you. And that will be the narrative that everybody absolutely has to accept and must, you know, uh, uh, support in any speaking that they do. And you already see this in corporations, 
on campuses in other places in America. Uh, and, you know, that theory that America is systematically racist leads necessarily to violence. And the reason is, why would you respect a country, its institutions, and by institutions, I mean, like, you know, Congress, the freedom of speech, the right peaceably to assemble, why would you respect any of those things and follow the kind of civilizational guidelines that the Constitution and the nation lays out for change if you say that it is fundamentally racist and disgusting and despicable? You don't. You riot. Uh, you force people. You compel people uh, through, uh, through force or the threat of force. And that's what a lot of these protests and riots are revealing. Uh, where the left wants to go if they do continue to uh, accept wholesale the identity politics theory and as they move away further and further from a party that represents working class Americans. Well, Arthur, thank you so much for coming on the Daily Signal podcast and talking through some really important issues. We appreciate having you on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And that will do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. We appreciate your patience as we record remotely during these weeks. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts and give us your feedback. Stay healthy and we will be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound design by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.